For everyone else, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. We are continuing on in our series through the book of 1 Kings. And uh, this is our second to last, probably, sermon in the life of King Solomon. Um, and so, up until this point, I've had a uh, decidedly um, positive view of King Solomon, but today is where the text turns. And I've, I've had a really positive view of him because the text is explicit when it wants to condemn him. And uh, we reached that text today. Um, now, while you're turning there, when Darren and I got married, um, everything in our lives uh, at that point became intertwined. Uh, basically, everything that we had entering into that point that was separate on that day became both of ours. And so our bank accounts became both of ours. Our bed became both of ours. Our toothbrushes became both of ours. Um, our, cabinet, our cabinets our cabinets became both of ours. And uh, so I was talking with a, uh, a couple uh, young couples just joking about this, but it uh, brought to mind for me uh, thinking about this. So Dara loves coffee, and uh, I don't. And so uh, she has a, but she has a ton of mugs. She's always had a lot of mugs. And uh, she's saving them all up for the day that we do need 30, 30 mugs out on the same day for a big party. And, uh, and so, but we, when we first got married, we, we lived in a, a seminary housing, okay, 600 square feet. And um, we had a, a kitchen that had four upper cabinets. I mean, four, two upper cabinets, four doors total, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so one on each side of the stove. And uh, that, was, that was literally the space that we had. And we had three of those doors taken up with cups. And, you know, in the scheme, you're trying to figure stuff out. Like, okay, how is this going to work with our marriage? Okay, how are we going to do this? Because now, because I got married, these cups are now mine. And, uh, and like, this, these cabinets are not just mine for me to decide what's going to go in there. It's both of us together. We have to decide how many of these doors are going to be taken up with cups. And so I remember, like, just, like, fighting. So we moved, when we moved from that house to a different one, I was like, nah, I'm going to lay down the law. Like, nah, we're not putting that many mugs in our, in our thing. We still have a ton of mugs, by the way. Uh, but but wh- why do I tell you that? Because no area of our lives when we got married was exempt from the marriage. Everything was both of ours. Everything was together now. Now, in the same way that everything in our lives was brought together and was not exempt, so too is that true of your relationship with Christ. So too is that true of your relationship with Christ. When you give your life to follow Jesus, there is no area of your life that is exempt from following Jesus. Everything is on the table with him. Everything is intertwined with him. There's nothing that you can say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you in this area. And when it comes to uh, my work life and when it comes to what I watch on TV, but when it comes to areas of sex, I'm going to, I'm going to peace out. I'm going to do my own thing on that. Now, why do I bring that up? Because that's what we're going to see here in 1 Kings. So when Jesus died on the cross and then he rose again from the dead, 
and then he ascended into heaven, what happened? He defeated death. He defeated sin. And so now he is living on the throne as Lord over all of creation, Lord over all of our lives. And when we give our lives to follow him, he says, good, follow me. Now I'm your master. That's how it works. That's what he says. And so when Jesus comes in as Lord over your life, he commands every area of your life. He commands every area of your life. What he says goes. And for Solomon here in 1 Kings, up until this point in 1 Kings, he's done a decent job of that. The text has actually done a, a, a shared several times about how he was devoted to God. Except one area of his life that he refused to hand over to his God was the area of women and sex. And what we're going to see is that that cost him. That cost him. And so look at the text with me. 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to read... We're going to read verses 1 through 3 right now. We're going to pray, and we're going to get going in it, and we'll read the rest of it as we go. And so King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. And he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. Go ahead to go into verse 4. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And so, Father, I come before you. We thank you for your word uh, here in First Kings, and so we pray that you would use it to open our hearts, open our minds uh, to see what you want to say to us about areas that we are withholding from you. And so pray for you to speak to us this morning. And so give us grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's how this is going to work this morning. What we're going to see is that Solomon actually has two compromises here in how he handles women. And, uh, and that leads, those two compromises grow into big compromises or big sins. And what that does is that leads to big problems. That's the, that is, those are my, that's like total like Baptist point right there, okay? I'm, but I, I was working on it. I was like, okay, how is this text going to line out? Like, how is this working on? I'm like, oh my gosh, two compromises led to big sins, led to big problems. That's easy to remember. And so I want you to see his first compromise here. First compromise here. In first, in verse one, what happened? King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. And how many did he have? Verse 3, 700 wives and 300 concubines. So first compromise here for Solomon is that he dove into polygamy. 
First compromise for Solomon is that he dove into polygamy. And we're going to talk about the foreign nature in just a second. That's the second compromise. The first one here is polygamy. Why is this a big compromise for him? For us today, we're like, oh my gosh, polygamy. Back then, it was really, really common. It was super common back then. Now, for us today, you're like, oh man, this is, I don't know what to do with this. But go to, go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This tells us what God's good design for us and for marriage looked like. Genesis chapter 2, that's the first book in the Bible, starting in verse 18. That's the small number. So big number 2, small number 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He had Adam there in the garden, and he said, I'm going to make a helper that corresponds to him. And the Lord God formed out of the ground wild animals, birds, and brought each to the man to see what he called it. Verse 20, he, the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into the woman. Into, he, made the, he took the rib and made it into a woman and brought her to the man. And all of a sudden, this dude has just been naming animals. He's like, okay, that one's going to be a rhinoceros. That one's going to be a blue jay. That one's going to be a weenie dog. And uh, so he's naming all these different animals. And all of a sudden, this other creature walks up and he sees a woman. And what does he do? He starts singing. He wrote her a poem here. Look what he says. Alas, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. Because his first thought was, whoa, man. Okay, that's, how, that's what it was. So for him, he was like, she's awesome. And so this woman came up to him. This woman came up, and he's like, yes, this one is mine. This one is awesome. And she was the perfect helpmate for him. They corresponded to one another. And in this, in this moment, what God said, or in verse 24, he says this, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become what? One flesh. They become one entity, one thing, one, like one unit. And both the man and his wife were naked, and they didn't feel any shame together. And in this, God created the very first marriage. And what was it? It was a man and one woman, and God had made them to correspond to each other. And this was God's good design for marriage. But what did Solomon do? He left that. He left that. Because he didn't say, like, yes, I want a woman who's going to correspond to me, who's going to be my companion for life. What does he do? I want to start amassing trophies. So originally, I was going to just kind of make a joke about polygamy and move on. Um, uh, but then I started reading, because uh, frankly, for most of us, like, we don't really deal with polygamy very often in our lives. And so I was like, I don't really know how, how applicable this is to us. But then I read a, uh, an article by a, a congregationalist pastor from the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, named Charles Caverno, and, uh, in which he described what was really going on with Polygamy. 
And, uh, and so he's, I'm going to read it to you. It's kind of long, but I want you to, to hear it. Polygamy really is a general term. Polygamy is. It's, it's, it just means a one person being married to multiple people. And uh, one, one man being married to multiple women actually is polygyny. Um, and, and then polyamory is, is when one woman's married to multiple men. But that's so uncommon that it's not really, uh, uh, not, not a lot of discussion about that. But with polygyny, um, that, was, that became so common that that and polygamy, the general term, just became one and the same. So when you say polygamy, you think of a man with multiple women. That's just how it works. Now, he start, this pastor starts talking about why is that the case? Why did those ter- two terms become synonymous? So, because the man is the, the stronger party in this. The man is the one who is so easily able to coerce people into his will. That's just the nature of it. And, uh, and so he says, polygamy has captured the whole position uh, philologically uh, covered by polygyny. It's, it's readily apparent why this is the case. The might of the physically strongest has dictated the situation. Men has, um, uh, I don't know where he got this information, one-fourth more muscular force than a woman. I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, when it comes to wrong in a sex relation, man always has the advantage. Um, and, and it was given to him, uh, and it has given him the field covered by the word polygamy. There, he is the master, and the woman is the victim. And it's plainly seen why this is, uh, or he's saying, like, he kind of traces, why has this become a thing? He says, uh, primarily due to the outcome of tribal wars. So men had separated into clans and had taken up different places of, of abode or living. And, uh, and so the collisions would soon occur between the two tribes, as uh, happened uh, between some Native Americans and the first settlers in the United States. Um, and so, uh, so you'd have two clans who would battle with one another. The men would all be killed. The, the other winning tribe would go in, take all the women and children, and they would divvy out the women uh, to the people in their tribe. And that's just kind of how it worked. And so you would go and conquer more people, divvy out the women there. And so they became trophies, essentially, is, is how it worked. And so that was a way to amass uh, status and a way to amass prestige as like your tribe is the conquering one. You're amassing more and more people. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so he's, he's discussing like, why are we talking about this? Why, like, why, how does this how, why, like, why is this a thing that we're discussing in this text? Well, what happened is that over time, woman became seen. She was the weaker party in that situation. And so, therefore, in the mind of the men, she was no longer a helpmate corresponding to him, but she simply became an object to be used for his pleasure. That was the point. That was the point. And so if you have one wife, but you have another one who comes along, you just take her. Why? Because you're the stronger one. And so for Solomon, his point here was this, is that Solomon was living out oppressiveness in his life. Solomon was living out oppressiveness towards these women in his life. And, and it could have been inadvertent. Like for him, this was really common. If you were a king back then, you had a ton of wives. That was the nature of it. His dad, David, did it. All the neighboring kings did it. And so that was just how it worked. And for, so it's not unique to him. It was the standard practice. But for Solomon, 
being one of God's people, being the, the leader of God's chosen people, the call for him was to be distinct. The call for him was to be the one who follows God's good design for marriage and for men and for women. That was the call. But Solomon's compromise here was that he was going to be like every other king. He was going to be like his dad, and he was going to follow the way of oppressiveness towards women. And so he starts amassing women as his wives. Why? They were hot. That's what he wanted. That's just how it worked. And I want you to see this in his second compromise here. Go back to the text, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you. Why? Because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. And he's not talking about hey, when you amass a bunch of wives, he's saying, look, when you choose a spouse, choose one from your people. Why? Because you need to be of the same mindset when it comes to your relationship with me. He is, at the beginning, God is setting up the standard of being equally yoked with your spouse. That's what he's setting up here. And so what Solomon did is he put himself around other women. He, he brought these women into his life to be his spouse who believed completely different things than him about God. They believed completely other gods. But he's like, nah, I want them. There are more trophies. They're pretty. Come on, bring them on. That was his mindset. That's how he worked. But there's a principle here that I want you to catch that Solomon slipped into that, like with his second compromise is that those that you put yourself around are who you will become. Those you put yourself around are who you will become. That's what he says. So Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 6. You don't have to turn there, but keep your, uh, if you do, keep your finger in 1 Kings. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 it says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so, Paul is setting up. He's telling the Corinthians, he's like, listen, as you enter into relationships with other people, the ones that are the closest in you, your relationship with your spouse, like if you're thinking about marriage, if you're thinking about a business relationship, if you're thinking about dating someone, be mindful that the other person is thinking the same way about as you are regarding Christ. Don't become unequally yoked together. Now, that's a weird term, yoked. It's not like an egg, you know. So back then, if you had oxen, you were trying to plow a field, what you would do is you would take two of them and you put this wood bracket around both of them to keep them moving at the same pace, at the same direction. That was the point. And so what's, what, what Paul is doing, he's picking up that imagery and he's saying, listen, if you're going to yoke yourself together with someone, if you're going to tie yourself together with someone, be it a relationship that's a marriage or a relationship that is a business relationship, if you're going to tie yourself together and do a three-legged race with someone, make sure that you are running the same direction. That's what he's saying. 
And so Solomon, what he did is he didn't ensure that. He didn't ensure that. And so what happened? Because he was trying to follow God, and all of his wives were not. They were trying to follow other gods. What eventually happened to Solomon? His devotion to God began to wane, and his needle began to come and point this direction, back towards the other gods. And so what did he do? Verse 5, Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. And so what did he do? His wives began to encourage him to follow their gods. And so eventually, what does he do? Built temples to the other gods in Jerusalem. That's what he did. Why? Because he was unequally yoked. He did not make sure that the person he was putting himself in a, a team with was running the same race that he was. Now, think about it for a second. Think about it. If, like, how might things have been different for Solomon here had he married one woman who was committed to the Lord and was faithful to God and was praying for him and was encouraging him and being faithful to God? How might things have gone different for Solomon? Like, he just if, if he would have put himself around that kind of person, like, we vastly underestimate the impact that our spouse or that our dating relationship or that our business relation partner, we vastly underestimate the impact that this other person has on our own lives. We vastly underestimate it. But they have, we, like, they do. They have this immense, immense power over how our lives turn out. And so the call here, this is the compromise. Solomon was unequally yoked. And as a side note, for, there are some of us in this room who fall in this category. And to where now you've, you're, you're married and, and your spouse is not on the same wavelength as you regarding Christ, regarding attending church, regarding things related to that be it a, your, your relationship with your spouse or a business relationship, and, and you're, you're feeling the struggle of that. You're like, you're like, man, I can see that that's like, like, this has played out in my life where I'm trying to be faithful to God. My spouse is not as much, and so it's difficult at times for me to want to wanna press on in following Christ. It's difficult for that. And we, you face loneliness, you face discouragement, um, and, and so you can speak to this specifically. Here's, here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want to say to you. Solomon's path doesn't have to be yours. Solomon's path doesn't have to be yours. You have the ability to remain faithful. It's, it, even though it's difficult and lonely at times, and you're discouraged at times, Christ is there, and he's with you, and he's walking with you, and he wants you to remain faithful to him. Solomon's, where he ends up, does not have to be where you end up. That doesn't have to be you. And so I want to give you two things to do if that's you. One, pray for your spouse. Pray for your spouse. And number two, determine for yourself to be faithful to Christ. Do those two things. But Solomon didn't do that. Solomon didn't. So these two compromises, one's polygamy, two is unequally yoked. What those two little compromises did is they grew into big sins or into big compromises. And so verse, verse 5, what we said is he began to follow these other gods. 
In verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, unlike his father David, and he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites on the hill across from Jerusalem. Now remember, if y'all remember, back in chapter 3, Solomon prayed for wisdom. He was at a high place, and God, uh, hey, he said, follow me. And then all of a sudden, he left the high place and went to Jerusalem, the place that God said, you'll worship. And uh, so he remained at Jerusalem until this point. And now what's happening is his, his heart is leaving God, and he's returning back to the high places. And uh, so just if you remember that, that's, what, that's what's happening here. Um, and so I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. We face little compromises day in and day out. And if left unchecked, they will develop. They will grow into big compromises. And that's what happened to Solomon here. And so Aaron Pardue is a pastor uh, down south of Houston. He said this, and I thought it was really helpful um, because we think like, oh, man, I've, I've, it's, it's just a little sin. It's, it's something I've, I'm kind of keeping in check. It's, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Here's, here's his, his statement he would say, and I always found it helpful. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I, I always loved that because it's so pithy. Uh, sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep, your, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And so Solomon's little compromises led to big compromises. Now, just like Solomon, I want to stay on topic with the issues of relating women and sex um, uh, because that's where we're at in the text. That's what, that's what he dealt with. And I, and I feel like many of us in this room also, most of us, uh, deal with these same issues. Now, maybe not polygamy as, as, as pressing of an issue uh, for us as it was for him, uh, but there, is, er, there are attributes from his polygamy that do extend into us in this room. For example, what were the things that came out of his polygamy, the areas that, are, that make it so evil? It is the objectification of the other, other gender, the other person that you're bringing into the marriage. It is having wondering eyes for who else you can bring in. And so he's viewing other people as objects. And he's got wondering eyes from who his first spouse was. And how does that relate to us in this room? Most commonly... It extends into areas of pornography. For many of us in this room, we struggle with that. We struggle with it. And so when Jesus calls us to follow him, he demands to be Lord over every area of our lives, and that includes how we think and deal with issues of sex, especially in the area of pornography. Um, That is an area, a way in which Solomon's sins extend to us here today. So most of us, many of us will attempt to justify and say, it's just a normal struggle. It's just a little thing. It's just a a slip up here and there. It's, you know, it's, it's it's something that most people deal with. And, uh, and it's everywhere. And, uh, and so it's just kind of just part of, part of our culture. And, uh, and, and so it's just how, how it works. Most of us try to justify it in that manner, or it's just a TV show. It's, it's, not, it's not like I'm going to Google and doing something. It's like it's just a TV show. And so, so we attempt to justify it. Uh, but here, here I, want you to, I want you to hear this, because those little compromises in the area of pornography lead 
to major compromises or major sins. And as we're going to see for Solomon, what happened is his major sins then led to major problems. And I want you to see that how you deal with pornography, little compromises grow into big compromises. And what's going to happen is those big compromises will lead to big problems for your marriage, for your soul. I want you to hear that. Because do you understand the impact that viewing pornography has on your relationship with your spouse? I want you to hear that. that, that I, I keep saying that a lot, but I, just a lot in here I want you to hear. Uh, uh, but the impact that's happening, having on your relationship with your spouse or your relationship now with what you think your future spouse is going to be like. Think of... Uh, if you're married now and you're viewing it, uh, how your spouse does not satisfy you like they used to. Um, back when you were 20 or 25, you, had a, you, you were a lot more interested, but less so anymore. Um, or think of your frequency together or your interest in that and um, how, how that's kind of diminished over time a little bit. Why? Part of the reason is because you're finding a fix somewhere else. And so you just don't have as much of a need for that. And so it's creating a cycle in your life where you're not getting a fix in your marriage, so you're returning back to porn, and that's satisfying you, so you're not seeking a fix in your marriage. And so you're going back, and it's just creating a circle for you of going back, always going back for more. Why? Because that's the cycle you've created in your heart. Another thing is consider what effect this has on your spouse's emotions. Were their thoughts of their own body, their thoughts of their worth to you? Uh, consider how much less affection is displayed in your marriage because of you viewing this semi-regularly. There's no buffer there between you anymore. Or consider how many more arguments you both have, how much less grace is shown. Here, I want you to hear this, and I'm saying that for real this time. Your porn use is ruining your marriage. I want you to hear that. Your porn use is ruining your marriage. And your porn use now, if you're not married, is ruining what your marriage can become because you're going to walk into your marriage with unrealistic expectations for your spouse. So when Jesus calls us to view, uh, to follow him, he commands that we repent over area, every area of sinfulness in our lives and to pursue him, to submit everything under his lordship to where he is the master over our lives. There are no exceptions. And you can see how this is actually for your good, right? Like if you rid your life of this, like most of us like who deal with struggles with this, like you, you understand like, man, I don't want this in my life. And you can see how this is, it would be good for you to not have it in your life. Where you don't have to hide something from your spouse or hide something from your accountability group or hide something from your, your small group or you don't have to feel guilty when you walk in the church building or feel guilty when you leave the house later, whatever it, like whenever that is. And so here's, here's the question. Is there some in this room who are thinking right now, this is me. This is me and I'm struggling and I hate it about myself and I feel guilty and I've been feeling conviction and I want to move on in my life. I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get there. Like, please tell me, like, this is me and I feel like I am. Like now I recognize I'm ruining my marriage and I want to move on. How do I do that? Here's what you do. 
Let me give you your game plan. Today, confess this sin to your spouse. If you're not married, find someone that you trust who is running the same race and pursuing Jesus and go to them and confess your sin to them. Do not leave it hidden in a closet anymore. Go and can get, with your, uh, get alone with your spouse. It might be right after the service. It might be later on this afternoon. You might need to call someone to take your kids so you can have a conversation together. Today, don't wait until tomorrow. Today, get with your spouse alone and confess your sin to them. Now, immediately, you're thinking of one objection. I can't do that because my spouse cannot handle it. It would hurt them too much, and so therefore I cannot take that step and do that. On one hand, you're right. This will certainly hurt your spouse. It's possible that they already know this is happening anyway, but if not, if you've done a good job of hiding it, it will hurt your spouse. Either way, it'll hurt them. Hurt them. But Jesus does not say, Rid your life of sin as long as it doesn't hurt someone. He says, follow me. He says, take your cross on your back and pursue me. That's what he says. So today, get with your spouse, confess your sin to them. And that is the first step towards restoration in your relationship with Christ and your relationship in your marriage. That is your first step towards restoration. There's no restoration if there's no confession. Spouse, if your partner, if your spouse, I keep saying that word a lot, because I'm trying to include both men and women, because usually in issues of porn, uh, you do talk to men, but, but nowadays, um, it's pretty equally viewed between men and women. And, uh, and so now, if you are the one who is on the receiving end of the confession. Here's what you do. Here is your job. Display mercy, display grace. Allow them to confess. Why? Because someone coming to confess sin, unprovoked, meaning they weren't caught. Someone doing it on their own volition is a major step. It is a major step, and it takes a huge amount of courage to do it. And so allow them to, to confess. And then here's the second thing you do. As a couple or as accountability partners, you devise a plan together for victory for the sake of Christ and for the sake of your marriage. You devise a plan together for victory. So you don't leave it as, okay, you confess it. Okay, let's just try better next time. No, no, no. That's not how it works. Like, what does Jesus say? If your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye's causing you to sin, cut it out. Devise a plan for victory. Don't just leave it for it to happen tomorrow. 
And so here's what that means. Together, you decide, you work out how this is going to work out for you guys. And so if you, one of you is struggling in this area, maybe both of you decide, okay, well, if that's the case, we need accountability software on every device in our home to where we have access to what the other person is looking at 24-7, to where every gift we search for, everything we do is sending an email to our spouse. And I do one, I have that on my phone, uh, on all my stuff, uh, called Accountable to You. Pay seven bucks a month for it. You're like, oh, seven dollars a month. What's your purity worth to you? Or maybe you need counseling. Maybe you need counseling together. And there are many family members, many church members uh, uh, here who, who, would, who get counseling. And so there's no shame in doing that. I, I, th- I think it's highly valuable. And uh, so I highly recommend one called Metropex Counseling. And, uh, and so if you... Uh, need resources for that, come talk to me. I will get you hooked up with Metroplex Counseling. Those dudes are awesome over there. Um, if Maybe you need to get rid of your phone altogether. Maybe you need to devise a plan to where you go to AT&T or you go to T-Mobile or whatever, and you get the dumbest phone they have there, and, uh, and that's your phone now. Why? Because you having an iPhone is no longer worth killing your marriage. Maybe you devise that plan together. That's what you're going to do. Maybe you need to move. So maybe there's someone in this room who is uh, struggling in it. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's something else where you're nurturing an inappropriate relationship with someone else, be it through work, be it through school, be it through a neighbor. I, I don't know. And maybe for the sake of your marriage, you physically need to move. I don't know. I don't know. What does your marriage need? What do, you, what, what do you guys need to do together in order to, to seek restoration in your marriage and to pursue Christ? One last one is maybe you need, just need to get away for a weekend to reconnect with one another, to give your spouse time to cry, and then you guys just go out and go hike together. Leave your phones in the car and just go and just try to be together and reconnect. I don't know. I don't know what you need. You need to decide what y'all do as a, as, a, as a couple. But hear this, is your spouse is your most important relationship in your life. Work at it. Work at it. You are a team. And so Solomon, uh, he never took these steps. And so when sin is left to grow, here's the result. It leads to big problems. Look at verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant, my statutes, which I commanded you, I will what? Tear away the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant." However, I won't do this during your lifetime for the sake of your dad, David. I'll tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I won't tear the entire kingdom away from him. I'll give him one tribe uh, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. And so Solomon's little compromises grew into big compromises. And those big compromises led to big problems. With who? With God. 
And what did he do? He came Solomon, and he started to bring discipline and judgment. He started to bring discipline and judgment. And so what did he say? Well, this kingdom of yours is no longer your kingdom. I'm taking it from your son's hand. So your dynasty you've built, your legacy you've built, that's done. There's no more. In verse 14, we're not going to read it all, but verse 14 to 26, God raises up three adversaries or three enemies. The Solomons had peace throughout his king, kingship, king, time as a king, but he raises up three emotionally motivated enemies to come and start attacking the kingdom. And then he gives the last guy, Jeroboam, who was a servant, he gives him the new kingdom. So Solomon's servant, not his son, gains the new kingdom, and he becomes the new King David. That's what Jeroboam was. So for Solomon, his, his, his compromises led to big problems with God. Now, for the Christian here, for the one who believes in Jesus, the one who follows Jesus, here's the truth. God will bring discipline in your life. God will bring discipline in your life like any good father. And so are you caught in sin? Are you caught in sin today? Like, are you feeling conviction today? Here's encouragement for you and also a warning for you. Here's encouragement. Because, because here's the thing is we believe that Jesus came and he died and he removed our sin from us. And so that way, when we follow him, God doesn't look at us as a sinful, guilty person, but he sees us as someone who's been made new. And that's your status. That is your status today as you're walking into those uncomfortable conversations that is your status, that God doesn't view you as guilty anymore. But even though that is the case, you can still walk in sin, and he will bring judgment to rip that out of your life. Here's a question. Did God remove Solomon from being one of his chosen people? No. No. Even though Solomon messed up pretty badly, he remained one of God's people. But did he remove the kingdom from him? Yes. Yes, he did. There are very real consequences for our sins. There are consequences for your marriage, consequences for your other relationships. But there's a truth in this that I want you to hear. I'll, call, I'll quit saying that, but is that just as Solomon remained one of God's people in spite of his unfaithfulness, the same thing is true for you in that you can never sin your way out of the love of God. You can never sin your way out of the love of God. And that is why he's bringing conviction today because he's looking at you and he's saying, you are my child and I've called you to follow my son, Jesus. And when you don't do that, when you're pursuing things that are outside of my design, what is he going to do? He's going to bring conviction into your life to get that out of your life through the Spirit. And that conviction is proof that you are one of God's people. Why? Because that's the job of the Holy Spirit. When he lives in you, what's one of his main jobs? To convict of sin. That's how you know the Spirit's in you. So as you leave today, knowing that you may need to have some uncomfortable conversations, 
you need to do some things to repent of sin, you can walk forward into these uncomfortable conversations in confidence, knowing that the Spirit of Christ is right there with you saying, yes, take this step, hand this area of your life over to me because I love you and I want what's best for you, which is for you to die to yourself and for you to follow me and to pursue God's good design for our world. So as the band comes up, there's some here who needs to take steps of repentance. So one, if that's you, ask God for forgiveness. And make a plan to rid your life of sin and follow Jesus. Or two is take your spouse or another person out of this room now or begin conversations later on this afternoon and to begin to confess your sin to them to make things right, to begin restoration, to make a plan uh, to move on in your life. Now, there are some here also who need to trust Jesus for the very first time. You're thinking, man, I just, this feels really harsh. This feels really heavy. I just don't know really like about all this. And here's the thing is Jesus is Lord over all. And he comes and he offers forgiveness and grace to all of us when he says, follow me. He says, I, he died for us and he rose to heaven and now he lives as Lord over all of creation. And so the call for all of us is to repent of our sins, to admit that we need him, that we need his grace, that we need his sacrifice for us. And then our call is then to follow him as the Lord of our lives. And so if that's you, here's what you do. You turn to him and you say, Jesus, I'm told that you died for me. I know that I have sinned or I've messed up. And so I want you to take that and I want to follow you with my life. And that's what you do.